I just do a little review of a little quiz to see how well you know the basic contours of Exodus. So if you were to summarize, summarize, summarize chapters one through fourteen, how would you summarize chapters one through fourteen? What happens in these first fourteen chapters of Exodus? First fourteen chapters. You were to guess. Sure, you know what happened in the, four, in the first few opening chapters. Let's extend that to another fourteen chapters. It's just the the uh, the ordeal of Israel and Egypt under Pharaoh. The ten uh, the ten plagues. Yahweh versus Pharaoh. Let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh hardening his heart. Those are the first fourteen chapters. What is something significant that happens in chapter fifteen? Uh, you see it in Revelation. What do you see in chapter 15 in Revelation? The Song of Moses. The Song of Moses. This, uh, he celebrates Exodus. Celebrates deliverance. And then what about uh, chapter 15 through 19? There were two, two purposes. The purpose of the law. It reveals our sin. And it, leads, it points to salvation. And the purpose of Israel. What's their role? Uh, chapter 19, establish, establish Sinai. And then chapter 20, what happens in chapter 20? The law. Yeah, the Ten Commandments, right. The Ten Commandments, we'll look at that Friday. Now we're in chapters 21 to 23, we're going to be examining the inner logic of the law, the structure of the law. And as we do that, we're going to, be, we're going to, we're going to understand the character of God more. We're going to understand the name of Yahweh. And understanding the logic of the law will help us to please God more by the way we live. Uh, chapter 20, we, look, look, we consider the Ten Commandments. We learn how they reflect creation theology to the world. Um, I have a good a blog uh, article or a set of articles that kind of further discuss how the Ten Commandments reflect creation theology. I sent it candy. Uh, if you want that, you can email me, or you can just type in Peter, Peter Goman, Peter, G-O-E-G-O-E-M-A-N, and then put Ten Commandments, and he, he talks about that in a, in a fuller way. So, Israel keeps the Ten Commandments, and they show the world what the garden was like before the fall. They manifest creation theology. They show up, they were supposed to uh, keep the Ten Commandments in order to communicate to the rest of the nations that only their God, Yahweh, can restore Eden to the world. Uh, and that's how we start. We, we, that's why we start with the Garden in Genesis 1, and that's what, why we finish with the Garden in Revelation 22. Chapter 20, uh, we also, in addition to how the Ten Commandments reflect creation of theology, we we saw how we look at, we consider the reality of sin and judgment for breaking the law. Right after the 10th commandment in verse 18, you see thunder, lightning, sound of the trumpet, smoking mountain. They shook and stood at a distance. There's still this massive uh, separation. The sin separates uh, Israel from their God. But there's hope because it ended with worship. There is this connection. There's a tension here. They're separated from God, and yet they worship Him. 
And, and, and so uh, there's this, this worship reflects a future hope where true reconciliation one day will happen. So the altar pointed in that direction. Now, <coughs> Uh, chapter 21 to 23, it expounds upon the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the foundation, it's the cornerstone of the law, and uh, it outflows from, from, from the Ten Commandments, outflows uh, the, 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 the uh, kind of uh, the, stipulations. the stipulations, the judgments, um, the Exposition, the expounding of the Ten Commandments. And in chapter 21, the emphasis is on command number six. Command number six. Command number six is you shall not murder. Verse 13. So chapter 21, it, it revolves around, it expounds, it builds upon the command not to murder. And on the flip side, we'll, we'll see kind of what that command not to murder entails. As, you will, as we'll see it, it entails not just not murdering, but it also entails the value of life, the preservation of life, the, the sanctity of life. In chapter 21, we learn just how important life is. And this theme of the sanctity of life is wrapped around how Israel should treat their slaves. In other words, this priority for of life is just important is just as important for the slave as it was for the Israelite. In chapter twenty one, there's a lot of content about uh, laws for slaves, and it's the only part of the law, even, even including Deuteronomy, where you get this much instruction about slavery. And these uh, slave laws, their design, their purpose is to display what Israel's slavery to Yahweh was all about. It was to re reflect their relationship to Yahweh. So the law, contained within the law, is this paradigm of Exodus theology. What does it mean to go from old slavery to, to Pharaoh and man to new slavery, to Yahweh? And these slave laws will help us understand that relationship. So we don't have to be ashamed about the slave laws in the Bible. Because in the Bible, they show two types of slavery. Bad slavery and good slavery. There is a slavery that's sinful and evil and wrong. We saw that kind of slavery where? In Egypt, right? Chapters 1 through 14, under Pharaoh. And there is a slavery that's right and good. And this law is going to, sh uh, and, and the law is going to show us the goodness of, of, of slavery intertwined with this emphasis on the sanctity of life in chapter 21. What is life all about? Well, life is about going from your old slavery to a new kind of slavery. And so Israel is establishing, when it comes to the laws about slavery, they're establishing this is a theology of who God is. This is his plan for life in the world as we go from old slaves to new slaves. In the New Testament, Paul, in Romans 6, he says what? Uh, we were old slaves, but now we're new slaves. We were old slaves under sin and condemnation, now we're new slaves to righteousness. Paul has this theology of exodus in his mind. So in this new kind of slavery, uh, 
the way Israel was supposed to treat their slaves, it was to show the blessing of redemption. It was supposed to be a good thing. So if you were to, let's say you were a slave of an Israelite in that time, and you were kind of, you went to the store, and somebody asked you, how, how is the, your new, uh, your, your new boss? And you would say, oh, I love him. Oh, I love my, my, my new, my new master. And then they would say, why in the world? How can that be? What are you talking about? Your answer would be this. Oh, because the way they treat me is the way Yahweh treats the slaves of Yahweh. Right? This is how God treats his people. And it's so wonderful. So that was the goal of the law concerning slavery. The way they practice it needed to picture how they, their experience under Yahweh. Their goal for the Israelites was to, to so treat their slaves in a way that they would say to themselves, wow, the way that my, my, my employers care about me is a reflection of how good, how this good God cares for me too. It's a conduit, right? So that's kind of, uh, the, the summary of chapter 21. It begins chapter 21 because of this. Now these are the judgments which you are about, which are, which you are to set before them. Greater specificity to this general sense of creational living required by the Ten Commandments in chapter 20. Look at verse 2. What was slavery fundamentally built on? It was a it was an economic slavery, right? Verse two: You buy a Hebrew slave; he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. So it was built on economics, and the way this this slavery would work is that. Uh, this is for poor people. This is for people who are in poverty, right? This is not if you're well-to-do or uh, wealthy, you wouldn't need this. But if you were really poor and you wanted to improve your lot in life, this would be the arrangement. I'm going to work for you for six years in exchange for a sum of money that will be given maybe before, during, or after. So oftentimes, a poor family, they're struggling, and a slave said, I want to better my life. I want to better the, the, light, the, the lifestyle of my family. They would say, okay, I, I, I agree to work for you for six years. And then the, and the master would take that sum of money and either give it to him or give it to his family. So now that slave had to work for this master for six years. So it was kind of an economic kind of thing. Um, this was the way out of poverty back then. Um, it would be very similar, uh, like like military service. I mean, if you go to military, very similar. They guarantee pay, housing, food, clothing, benefits, and for many people from many countries, it's a way out of poverty. And this this the servanthood slavery functions similarly in ancient Israel. Um, verse three and four. So that's kind of it's an economic dynamic to it. And then verses 3 and 4, let me read that. If he comes along, he, he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. 
The purpose of the law in verses 3 and 4, the purpose of these commandments, was to guarantee, it was to ensure that neither the slave nor the master lost what was rightfully his at the time of termination of the contracted service. Verse 3 is pretty straightforward. He goes alone, he leaves alone. If he's the, if he, if he comes alone and he's alone at the end of that period, he leaves alone. If he has a wife going into that situation, then his wife shall go out with him. In verse 4, it's a little bit, little bit complicated. Because now, let's say during that time, the master gives him a wife, they have children and daughters, uh, he can leave alone. He can go by himself or, he can remain to stay with the master as a permanent slave. What's, what's going on here? Well, just so you know, in ancient Israel, marriages were arranged. <coughs> marriages were arranged. So, if a woman uh, from poverty, if she was poor, uh, she would, uh, she would receive a sum of money and, um, for those six years, the, the, the responsibility of marriage fell on the mass, in the master's hands. That means the master would also pay a dowry. So there would be <coughs> money for the service for six years plus a dowry. So this employer has invested heavily into this woman, right? And so <laughs> verses four, five, and six, is to guarantee that, let's say another guy comes in alone, he marries one of a, a female slave, he can't just take her with him at the end of six years if this employer has invested a lot of money. So verses four, five, and six is designed to protect the economic fairness of the employer. You can't just leave. Let's say she has three years on her contract. Plus a dowry. Uh, he just can't, he, he can't leave. Uh, now a dowry was like your life savings. The possibility of him paying her a contract off plus paying the dowry off is just a practical impossibility. There's no way he can do it. So he has an option. You can go, you can, uh, you can go, you can leave. Uh, presumably, uh, is she wait? You know, you you can wait for her time. That go when she's done with six years, uh, you can wait for her to end the contract. But uh, if you want to stay there uh, and not and you have kids involved, you have children involved, the economic responsibility is 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 even greater. So really, it's a practical impossibility for him to pay her contract off, pay her dowry. And then pay for their entire lifestyle, their children for the rest of his life. It's an impossibility. So you have that option. Now, so he has the choice of either leaving alone or verse five and six. He has. He also. What 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 is implied? He uh, he could also pay off the contract. The expense of the children, the dowry, but this is probably a practical impossibility. Or you could say, if the slave plainly, verse 5, says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, that his master shall 
bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. Notice verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master. You see that? That relationship? He loves his employer. He knows he's going to be taken care of. I love him. That's how a slavery to Yahweh is supposed to be. Israel is supposed to love their God. And so this is uh, protecting the employer. It's protecting uh, the slave, the wife. Everybody knows what's involved. Everybody knows the rules. And so um, you have this type of uh, arrangement. Any questions? Uh, we're just going through 11. Uh, deals with what if... Uh, go ahead. Bless you. Yeah. Of course we know that slavery um, is not good. Uh, I'm talking about right now. We have we have found that slavery is not good, but it's a, it's a result of sin. It's a simple, it's a simple nature of man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, God never intended to, uh, for people to be a slave of anyone. That was the result of the, the no, sin, no, 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 simple no. nature of man. So, God intended his people to be slaves to Yahweh. Yeah, yeah. So, that's, in, that's, in, that's, in, initially in creation. So, so creation. There's, there's a good slavery. That's a spiritual slavery. Uh, Jesus is called uh, our master. Yeah, yeah. We're called slaves in the New Testament. Dulops. All right. right? All right. And there's a, kind, there's a good slavery in the Bible. There's a good slavery. But and there's a bad slavery. In, in creation, with Adam and Eve. Was so this good slavery is not a result of the fall. No, I'm, I'm asking the question. Yeah. If, if Adam and Eve had never... So are we going to have slavery in heaven? Uh, no. Correct. Uh, yes. Uh, because there's no poverty. Correct. Right. Yes. Initially, God never intended in His mind when He created man. Yes. He, yes. His plan was not have. Oh, no, no, no. Adam and Eve. If you have children. Correct. 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 Yes. Uh, so this is a good slavery versus bad slavery in a fallen world. In a fallen world. In fallen condition. Correct. So it's a little more nuanced. Because now we enjoy emancipation of So So American slavery was a bad kind of slavery, was an evil kind of slavery, because why? It was, it was, uh, the the assumption was that uh, black people were a lesser, they were a less, they were not, they weren't made in the image of God. And the white, the whites were a superior person. So it was a race-based, race-based child slavery. This is economic-based slavery. And so because a white saw blacks as inferior, there was abuse, uh, murder, uh, inhumane treatment. 
as we'll see in chapter 21, you see this equality with uh, being a free man and a slave. There is this equality, which is, uh, as we'll see, was incredibly unique in this world, in this ancient Near Eastern world and culture. So we'll, we'll continue with that. Okay? Verses 7 through 11. Um, this is, uh, see, verse, I mean, there's, 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 there's language of slave and master, but as you go through this, this is not unlike, this is not unlike, um, a military situation here, right? If I wanted to go to West Point, I get in, I get a free education, and then for about six, how many, six or seven years, <coughs> they control my life. They own my life. And it's a, it's an economic kind of constraint. And chapter 21 and 22 and 23 is very similar to that. There's these economic forces. I pay you and you owe me back. So there's nothing racial here that I'm superior to you. You're inferior. Therefore, it's no. You're poor. I have money. And in exchange for services, uh, uh, you know, you know, in exchange for services, I will pay you or your family. So it's, it's, it's uh, different. But the same language is kind of used to show authority. You know, there was a little bit more authority, a little bit more control there. So, on verses 7 through 11, you have a situation, a woman, she is, goes in uh, with this contract, but she's also made a wife, Right? So he buys a wife, he buys a, a, an employee, and therefore, if a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. Because the idea is that now she's married to this employer or her boss. Okay? So this is how she's supposed to be treated in that situation. Okay? If this is a if this is a contract, verses seven through eleven is written to protect her. It's written for her good. Right? This is how you were to treat her. Uh, well, before we get to move on to verses eight and following, why would a man buy a woman as a servant and wife at the same time? Why would he do that? Well, there could be a lot of there could be a lot of reasons. Uh, the one reason could have been he may he may have he may have had one wife, and he wanted his second wife to have the status of a servant without inheritance rights, so that all of his inheritance would go to his first wife. Or he could have been a widower with kids who had inheritance rights. So if he made her have the status of a first wife, there would be some uh, complications with who would get that inheritance, her kids or the kids of his first wife who deceased. So whatever the, uh, the scenario was, it probably involved a, a situation where the woman wanted to marry the woman whose status as his wife would, would also not threaten the status of his estate or the inheritance involved. So this is how he would do that, right? Now, in verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 8, if she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated for himself, 
he shall let her be redeemed. She can be bought back. She can go to her father and say, hey, this guy's a stinker, and the father could had the right to buy his daughter back. He didn't have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his treachery to her. He can't do anything he wants. He can't sell her to strangers. She would have the right to be redeemed by family. By family. Verse 9. If he designates her for a son, let's say he uh, uh, there's a situation where um, he wants to uh, provide this uh, the situation where he pays her family a sum of money and a dowry, and and it happens that this slave a woman marries her son. Guess what? He shall do to her according to the custom of daughters. He has to treat her like a daughter. She has the same legal right, the late same legal status. She's not inferior to a daughter or a free woman. She's not inferior to that, right? So when we become slaves to God. We are sons and daughters of God as well. We're both. We're his slaves and we're his children. Verse 10. Let's say he's a real stinker. He takes for himself another woman. He may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If she became the second wife, she had a right to be treated as equal as the first wife. So this is a toleration this law tolerates this uh, creation aberration. Whether you were a servant or not, but you had to be treated equally to the way a first wife would be treated. A second wife couldn't be a second class wife. And verse 11, and if he doesn't do these three things for her, if he doesn't give her the same rights as a first wife, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. She can become free. So do you see how, and in, in this this culture, in this age, this is unheard of. This is unheard of. You don't treat slaves as well and as fairly as somebody, a free person, right? As a daughter or as a son. As the status of a first wife. Uh, you, you didn't treat uh, your slave that way, but this this law ensures that you do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> this is my my how I see the situation here. Mm -hmm. All nations around the world were practicing slavery. Yes. If God tells Israel not to practice slavery. They will never fulfill that command. Because this whole system right. was based on that. Right. I mean, having a slave. Every, every, all nations had slaves. Yes. But, and all nations had laws right. for slavery. Right, right. But this is a different law. So it's a yes. law, it's a law of uh, it's a law of, of love. Yes. Compared to the other nations, absolutely. Yes. So yes. Israel was to be an example yes. to the rest of the world practicing this law. Uh, <clears throat> yes, because you know, uh, but it's more than that. It's, <clears throat> it's more than that uh, because you have to ask the question: 
why does God begin his exposition of the Ten Commandments with laws about slavery? Like, why right after the Exodus and the Ten Commandments does he start with slavery? And it's to show, it's to show that the way, because the whole, the whole theme of Exodus is going from old, from chapters 1 through 20, the story is they were slaves under Pharaoh, and now they're slaves of Yahweh. And so now, they're supposed to show this relationship, this new relationship in how they treat their slaves. Does that make sense? So yes, uh, uh, it is, it's, it's one way to show this is how the world shall treat their slaves, but that's really secondary. The primary purpose, the primary purpose is as they're seeing Israel treat their slaves so well, they would ask, why do you treat your slaves so well? And they would say, this is how Yahweh treats us. This is our relationship with Yahweh. So that the nations would be like, I want to worship your God. So it was evangelistic. It was reflecting the vertical slave master was 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 it was it was reflected in this horizontal, and this is why it begins that way. It starts this way. So yes, but the emphasis here is uh, this is how our relationship with Yahweh is. And I think, like, without this, they wouldn't have known how to treat slaves differently than when they were in Egypt. They exactly. would have just done what the pagans did. Exactly. But I think God is using this, um, taking advantage of this to show what, you know, what slavery should be like according to his heart. Um, you know, um, showing, you know, showing the goodness of God through it, I guess, through the law about slaves. Showing the Israelites how to do it in a way that works. Well, Israel just was just coming out of slavery, so yes. And this is now uh, forty years after going through the desert, yeah. through the wilderness. Yeah. They're just right there, starting their lives, you know. And they did, they wouldn't know how to treat other people, yeah. how to treat uh, sure, slaves. Sure. They wouldn't know how to do it. They, they would treat the other people the same way they were treated in Egypt. Yeah, yeah, but in this world, they live in a, a master-slave dynamic of a world. That you're a slave to somebody. You're either, remember, uh, every city, every culture, there was a suzerain vassal treaty. The suzerain was the warlord. I conquered you. You must do this now. If you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. That's the world they live in. You're a, you're a slave to somebody. Uh, uh, spiritually, you're a slave to Satan or you're a slave to God. So you have this, this dynamic where there's this, like everybody's a master or slave. Everybody. You're either a slave to Pharaoh or a slave to a warlord. Uh, and so here, God is saying, this is how, this is like a, a turning point in history. You're used to this kind of master-slave relationship. I'm going to show you a new master-slave relationship. 
This is a turning point in history. There's nothing like this in the world up until this point. Remember chapter 20? Chapter 20, uh, uh, verse 2? Remember how suzerain vassal treaties began? It began this way. The history. You, you know how you're a slave? It's because I conquered your, I killed your king. I destroyed him. I cut his head off. <clears throat> and if you don't do this, I'm going to destroy you. Look at how it starts. Verse 2. I am Yahweh your God, and I, and I rescued you. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the reason I'm your God, because I saved you. See, verse 2, turning point in this master-slave idea. What? I'm a slave to this master because he saved me. He saved me. So it's a new paradigm of thinking, a new way of thinking about uh, submission to authority, right? Unheard of. And so chapter 21, in how they are supposed to practice slavery, it's supposed to reflect this new paradigm of this master-slave relationship. So the way they practice slavery in 21, an economic slavery to better the lives it is so different than the rest of the world. And it's to show this is the name of Yahweh. This is who Yahweh is. Chapter 21 is the sixth commandment. He's a God of life. The sanctity of life. And he cares about the slave. He cares about the slave's life as much as a free man's life. That's the idea. And this would blow the world away. Right? That if Yahweh is your master, he loves you just the same. There's no these classes. There's no categories. There's no rich or poor. He loves you the same. Regardless of your socioeconomic condition, slave or free man, he loves you the same. Chapter 21 is trying to convey that idea. He loves you the same as a free man. Okay? Uh, <laughs> we got a jet. We got a jet. I'll, I'll answer questions later. Okay. Um, so, uh, verse 11. Okay, now we go to general law about protection of life generally for all people, all animals. This includes uh, slaves. Verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Priority for life. Right? Sixth commandment. God prioritizes life. Um, uh, verse 13. So, first, verse 12 is a premeditated murder. Verse 13 is uh, is uh, an accident. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. Uh, this was very common back then. Somebody would get run over by a wagon, get hit by a tool... Uh, this is kind of like friendly fire in a, in a, in a war. In, in this, in this uh, time, there was a mandatory vengeance system. It was the societal code of conduct. You can, if my son or daughter dies, I don't care. I have to kill one of your sons and daughters. That's how people thought, right? Uh, you know, so I, I read this story of uh, this uh, mafia boss in New Jersey. The neighbor accidentally like ran over his daughter, killed her. Accident. 
Guess what happened to the neighbor? He disappeared in a month, right? That type of thinking was the norm back then. And so God says in verse 13, if it's an accident, uh, you're, you, you, you get to, you get to, you, you don't have to die. You don't have, there's no revenge. No then, no. And this applies for whether you're a slave or you're, or you're a free, free person. Um, verse 14. However, a man acts presumptuous toward his neighbor, so as to kill him by deceit, you shall you take him even from the altar that he may die. So back then, uh, let's say you did kill somebody, or it was premeditated, uh, people would go to the temple, and they would hold on to the altar, uh, and they were, it was like kind of like, okay, you know, look, I, I touched the altar, I, I wasn't struck down by lightning, uh, God must... Uh, you know, God must uh, forgive me, or, or you know, uh, you know, nobody would dare kill somebody on the altar. So that was your protection, protective spot. And he says, you know what? You know what? Even if you go to the altar, if it was first degree murder, uh, you, you have to die. You have the right to take them from the altar and, and, and commit and have capital punishment. Verse, uh, verse uh, fifteen through seventeen. He who strikes his father or mother shall be surely put to death. Uh, this would be a serious kind of striking. Uh, this is not like, you know, my four-year-old four hits me. You know, you know, it's not that way. Uh, verse 17, he who curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. This is not like an argument. You know, somebody says, oh, I wish you were dead. It's not like that. It's like you're, you're basically formally saying you're no longer my mother and father. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm not going to care for you. This relationship is over. That that would warrant the death penalty. Verses 18 through 21. Um, this deals with when there's a fight. Uh, if a man contends with each other, strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside of his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. So if you get if they if they get in a fight. The only, and you're the, you're the victor, you only pay for his loss of time. If he can't work for three days, you would pay for those expenses. The idea is if the other guy willingly got into this fight, uh, he still bears some responsibility. So, uh, the, 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 the liability is limited here. Verse 20, if the man strikes his, uh, male or female slave with the rod and he dies at his hand, he shall surely be punished. Uh, verse 12 applies to verse 20. So if a male or female dies, he shall be put to death as well. Verse 21. But if for a day or two he's able to stand, no punishment shall be taken, for he is his property. He doesn't have to pay the expenses of a lost wage because why? It hurt the master, right? The master's the one who lost the the benefits of his employment. So he was hurt already, right? So it hurts him as well. So that's why he doesn't have to pay. Again, so far, what, what, what the, the idea God is trying to say between the slave and the free man is there's total equality, right? There's not, neither rich nor poor, neither Jew nor Gentile, woman or, or, or female. There's equality here. And this is not like slavery is seen in other nations, other cultures, where the slave was inferior in some way. Not so with God. Um, verse 22. 
man struggles with each other, strikes a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no uh, injury, he shall be surely fine as the woman's husband will set for him, and he shall pay as the judge decides. So even if the woman is not injured, uh, you still, if, it was, if the woman was hurt, let's say, you know, two husbands are fighting, and, and the, the pregnant woman gets in the way, uh, even though she's not uh, injured, there still needs to be a penalty penalty determined by the woman's husband. Now, let's say there is injury, though. To the wife or to the child, the penalty must fit the severity of the damage. Verse 23, but if there is any further in injury, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. If the wife's uh, eye gets put out, you can take out the eye of the perpetrator. If she dies, he dies. If the baby dies, he dies, right? The baby's life is just as valuable as the adult's life. There's this equality here. Go to verse 26 and 27. This is very unique. And if a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and ruins it, guess what? He shall let him go free on account of his eye. And if he knocks out a tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let him go free on account of his tooth. So if there's any kind of abuse to the slave, the slave has the right to leave. This is unheard of. Now, going back to the, the fighting here, uh, if a man strikes his femur, if they look at Rodney, oh no, I'm sorry. Uh, if, if there's, so verse 20 and 21, there's this assumption where there's like a willing two-person, two-person, there's a, there's a fight, there's an argument, uh, you know, it's kind of mutual, a slave says, I'm not going to listen to you, and he punches the master, the master hits him back, and there's uh, that type of injury, you know, there's, there's no penalty. But if it's just pure abuse, and you, you, you punch him in the eye, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a bruise, there's a, a serious injury, a tooth comes out, he gets to go free. You're not allowed to be, abuse your slave because there's equality. There's equality built into this law. Verses 28 to 36. Um, uh, back then, again, different world. Uh, everybody was kind of a farmer. Uh, whether you were a potter or you had or you were a, a, a mason, everybody had animals. Okay. And so that means there were always accidents with animals around. So today, it would be equivalent to traffic laws and traffic accidents. People running red lights, people getting into accidents, right? So you have tickets, you have laws for that. Back then, it was animals. Animals would, would you would get in trouble with animals. And so there needed to be laws for animals. The most dangerous animal was a bull. A bull. So if you had a bull... That was the kind of the largest, strongest, most dangerous of all the farm animals. And so that's why the, the bull is being emphasized in verses 28 to 36. Verse 28, the man gores a, gores a man or a woman to death. The ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall, shall go unpunished. Verse 29, if, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned, and then he does not confine it, and it puts a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. 
So most of the time, oxen were cool. They were fine. Once in a while, they got out of hand. If they got out of hand, and they killed a man or a woman, but the owner didn't know, the owner was innocent. But, if the ox kind of did that all the time, and the owner knew that the ox was dangerous, and it killed somebody, then the owner had to die. The owner shall be put to death. Um, <clears throat> verse 30. Now let's say, but he doesn't, let's say it's kind of, uh, you know, yeah, somebody says, you know, uh, let's say my, my, uh, my, uh, my ox gets out of the barn and it kills your aunt. And there are rumors that you would have, you know, he was, this, this, this ox had a bad temper. But I said, well, I, I never seen it. I don't know. And then the neighbor said, well, I saw your ox one day. You know, he, he was kind of aggressive and it was just like, hmm. And it's kind of like, it's iffy. And let's say, you know, it's Peter's aunt, you know? And I say, Peter, uh, you know, I, I'm so sorry. And then Donna's like, oh, oh, no, I saw that ox, Peter. You can kill him. You can kill him. Right? Situations like that, Peter would have the right to decide whether I die or not. Verse 30, the ransom is demanded of him. Then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. Peter says, okay, I'll take your word for it, George. So in exchange for your life, I want you to give me all your ox, all your sheep. So Peter would have uh, uh, some say in, in how I should be punished. Okay? Um, what, whether, whether it gores is verse 31, whether it gores a, a son or a daughter, it shall be done to him according to the same judgment. Uh, if it's uh, clear, then you put to death. If it's unclear, you have the ransom will be paid. Verse 32, if an ox scores a male or female slave, the owner shall give his or her master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. So here, uh, the situation still applies. If it's clear there was negligence, um, the, uh, the that person would die. If there was kind of a, a sticky situation, um, the ransom was at least 30 shekels of silver. And again, verse 32, it's written because this would be the temptation, right? I'm a, I'm a pagan. I'm a pagan uh, owner. Alfredo's a pagan owner. He has a slave. My ox gores. Uh, my ox gores Alfredo's slave. Right now, I'm liable. Okay, for that death. Uh, but it's 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 not clear what happened. If I'm I was negligent or not. Most of the time, Alfredo would be say, "It's just to say, who cares? Who cares?" No, no problem. That was most, that was the standard. You know, a worthless slave. Here it says, you, you can't make that kind of deal with slaves. You can't make that kind of deal. If, uh, my ox kills Alfredo's slave, uh, uh, I have to pay him 30 shekels of silver. I have to. He's, Thirty shekels of silver 
is lots of money. It's very expensive. Uh, Jesus was sold for how much? And then what did uh, they use the money for? To buy land. Prime real estate, right? How much is real estate here in Arlington? A million, two million. It's a lot of money. 30 shekels of silver is a lot. That's how much this slave is worth. You can't just say forget about it. Because this slave's life is that valuable. That slaves of Yahweh are that valuable to him. That's how valuable they are. So this is, again, um, shows how valuable. Here's, this is equality. This is equality. This is unheard of. This is unmatched. Verse 33 to 36 uh, talks about uh, you know, pits and, and negligent homicide and all that kind of accidents. Um, and so there's that. Now, we're going to go real quick. Let's see what time. What do I have time? Okay, I got Okay, I still have, I still have what, a couple hours? <laughs> all right. So, we go to... Yes, questions. Go ahead. Any questions? Yes. Um, so, um, back to... Uh, I got a couple Yes. So back to um, um, the first section. Could could you explain? I know that in twenty fourteen, twenty verse fourteen, um, the law talks about adultery. Now, can you talk about um, how, like, what it means in terms of uh, an owner going as a wife and takes a female slave as a, another wife? How do you reconcile the, the term adultery within that context? Is it based on what? What are you, what are you talking about? Oh, oh, chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. 14, okay. Yeah, and then in verse in chapter 21, I see that the um, a rich owner, I mean, a, a rich person can actually take a slave, but a slave as a single one. Yeah, so, so you, you don't want to get confused. So chapter 21, it, it, it's, it's all about you shall not murder. You shall not murder. You shall uh, value life. Okay. So yes, there's uh, there may be implications of adultery, but chapter one twenty one deals with uh, this the sixth commandment: you shall not murder, and the sanctity of life. Okay. And so in this in this first section about uh, slaves, it's about the value of a slave's life. Okay. Valuing. So uh, he's not really thinking of adultery, primarily adultery. Okay. He's thinking that the value of this slave's life, this woman, okay. therefore she needs to be protected. Okay, and then, yeah. then we can move on to the second one. Yeah. So in 2112, yeah. I saw that the result, he, he was tracked and then the sudden died, child surely be put to death. Yes. And then there's a nuance here in 2120, he then tracks his male female slave with a wife and he yeah. dies, yeah. he shall surely be not put to death but punished. Uh, What's the difference here? It's the same no thing? difference. It's just it's so in, in this. It's it's the standard. So he's punished according to the norm. Okay. So you go back to verse twelve. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. So he's punished in the same way. Receives the same punishment. But the question is legitimate about a situation that's regulated by the law, but it's not ideal in God's eyes, and Jesus Himself commented on your question, which is an excellent question. When Jesus treated the mosaic uh, stipulations of divorce, 
he answered that question and he said they are not ideal. Jesus himself said they are not ideal, but you have hardened hearts. Right, right, right. So, yeah, so within the law about uh, marrying uh, multiple wives and protection, yeah. because this is a law for a nation, and it's a civic law, uh, there is this allowance for the realities of life, mm -hmm. the realities of the culture. Yes. There will be people who take multiple wives. That's just a reality, and these are the, the laws that govern that. Yeah, so, that's, that's so there's a part of the law included in, in that. Yeah, maybe my question would be more to lean towards like some other chapters and redress that. Yeah. It, it's just, it becomes a little bit so, um, so, yeah, so the, the question is, why doesn't God just outlaw just out, outlaw multiple wives, right? That's kind of the question. Yeah, so why doesn't he just outlaw it uh, uh, just straight up in the, yeah. from the beginning? And I think, you know, as uh, Evil said, uh, the answer Jesus gave was because of the hardness of your heart, because God knows knew that you would never you would never obey that law, that this is like the best He can do for Israelites who He knows have stony hard cold hearts who would never be redeemed. And, and so that's Jesus' answer. And within, within the context yeah. as well of how so some of the yeah some of the law is kind of based on the lowest common denominator okay. of actions. Okay. It's like the very least expectation, okay. and, and and part of the law is based on that. Okay. okay? Let's move on. I don't have a lot of time. Uh, let's go uh, now. Verse 20, chapter twenty two and twenty three. We're just going to focus on the structure of these two chapters. Okay, the structure of it. Um. Verses 1 through 17, I want you to notice something, okay, of the grammar. Uh, look at verse 1, if, verse 2, if, verse 4, if, 5, if, 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 right? You see the ifs? Mm -hmm. 10, if, verse 12, but if, 13, now if, 14, if, 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 if. Mm -hmm. Starting from verse 18, what do you see? You, you, right? Verse uh 21, you, verse 22, you, verse 23, and if you, right? Verse 25, if you, verse 26, if you, right? Verse 28, you, 29, you, 30, you, 31, you. Okay? See all the yous? No, I'm sorry. It stops at verse 24, okay? Yeah. Yeah, starting from all of you, start, and then back in verse 20, starting from 25, you have if, if, right? If, until verse 27, okay? And then the you start in verse 28. Okay? So, so from verse 1 through 27, it's a big chiasm. Where there's the ifs, verses 1 through 17. There's the you's, verses 18 through 24. And then there's the ifs again, from verse 25 through 27. You see that, everybody? Right? So, this is how this chiasm works. This is the first big Chiasm. So verses 1 through 17, it's all about, it, it, it's an exposition of command number 8, the command not to steal. Okay? Verses 1 through 17 is the command not to steal. And then, verses 18 through 24, the use, all the use, that's commandment number 7, 
commandment that deals with not committing adultery. And then 25 through 27, the ifs again, deals with command number 8, the command not to steal. So, so there's command not to steal, that's the sandwich part, the, the bread, and the meat in the middle is not to commit adultery that emphasizes holiness. Holiness. Okay? There's a second big uh, chiasm. Second big, big chiasm. That starts again in chapter 22, verse 28. Uh, is, uh, basically, uh, or 28... So you have 28. So yeah, so there's, 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 you shall not curse God nor curse a, a ruler of your people. That's command number five. There's more use, 29 to 31. That's command number 10, not to covet, not to covet. And then there's command number uh, nine, 23, one through nine. That's commandment number nine, not to bear false witness. That's in the middle. And then from 23, 10 through 19, that's command number 10, just like it was in verses 29 to 31. And the command number 10, do not covet. It includes command number four, right? To keep the Sabbath. And remember, remember last uh, Friday? Command four and 10, they go together. Then in verse chapter 23, uh, 20, basically 22 through 25, you have the commands number 1 and 2. And remember how I said 1 and 2 goes with command number 5 to honor your father and mother? And so you have basically command number 5, command number 10, command number 9 in the middle, not to bear false witness. No, yes, command number 9, not, yeah, not to bear false witness. And then command number 10, and the command number one and two, which is basically command number five, right? So that's how. So so okay. So those, those are the. That's how that works. So so far in these three chapters, these are the commands we saw. Uh, chapter twenty-one was command number six, right? You shall not murder. Chapter twenty-two and twenty-three, you see command number seven, command number eight, command number five. Command number 10, command number 9, command number 4, command number 1 and 2. One command is missing. Commandment number 3, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. That's missing. Command number 3. That command to not use the Lord's name is, it's, it's, it's throughout these two chapters, it's throughout these chapters. It's spread through all these texts. Look at chapter 23, 13. Now, concerning everything which I have said to you, beware. Do, do not mention the name of other gods, or let them be heard from your mouth, right? Don't use it, the name, right? Don't, don't use the name of another god. Look at chapter 23, verse 21. Keep watch uh, of yourself before him, and listen to his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. Okay? So... We, we understand commandment number three, when, it, when, when commandment number three says, you shall not use the Lord your name in vain, it means more than just swearing falsely, it means living your life. Live in such a way that reflects the nature of Yahweh. 
right? And so chapter 21, 22, 23 is basically, this is how you, this is how you fulfill commandment number three. This is how you not uh, use the Lord name in vain, okay? Remember that for this Sunday. Remember commandment number three for this Sunday, okay? Because it's gonna, it's gonna blow your mind, okay? So just remember that. In my pocket, I'm not gonna, I'm not, I won't tell you anything more. So you have 21 to 23. It's all about the Ten Commandments. We understand who God is by understanding His commandments. Uh, we, we, Exodus theology is a bonus for us. It reveals this Exodus theology. And what it shows, all these commandments, what it shows, every aspect of your life needs to be about God. Every detail. There's none of this, you know, God doesn't care about how I dress, or God doesn't care about this. I have freedom here. No. Every part of your life he cares about. This is the this is the principle behind all these commands. Okay? So I gave you the structure. Let's go real quick. Uh, five more minutes. Five more minutes. Let's just go through chapter 22 to 23 really quick. Uh, remember, uh, 1 through, how did that, uh, uh, is 1 through 17, it's all about theft. You shall not steal. You know, if he steals an ox, there's a thief there. Um, look at verse 16 and 17. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry for virgins. This is part of theft, right? What did we learn about theft? Theft can be more than monetary. It can be qualitative. So here's a man who's stolen the honor of a virgin. And guess what? And he, she doesn't have to marry him. She doesn't have to marry him. The father decides whether or not. The father can say, nope, I'm not going to let you marry her. Or the father, for some whatever reason... Can say, okay, I'll allow you. I'll allow you. I'll allow you to marry my daughter, even though you stole her honor. Even though you stole her honor. Verse seventeen. If he says no, the man who seduced the virgin, who stole from her, he has to pay a dowry to the father. Now, back then, dowries are a lot of money. That's your life savings, right? So if you pay a so so a guy would work all his life, you know, to pay a dowry, and then he steals from a virgin, he has to take all that money, give it to the father, and he has to start all over. He has to start all over. That's how it works. And 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 uh, so yeah, there you go. Verse eighteen. Remember verse uh, eighteen through twenty-four. This is the command not to commit adultery. And what do we learn about this command? Look, you shall not allow a sorceress to live. Right? So the command to not commit adultery, it involves a spiritual element. That there's spiritual, uh, this, this command includes spiritual adultery. Because a sorceress would be a spiritual adulteress. Uh, it has to do with any kind of uh, sexual impurity. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. 
Um, now you, you might think, how do we know verse 16 and 17 is not part of the you shall not commit adultery like 18 and 19 is, right? How do we know that? Because of the structure, the, 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 the grammar, right? If, 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 it's all the ifs, verse 16, if, if. So Moses is keeping verses 16 and 17 under the command not to steal. And he's beginning a new section with the you, you, yous, right? Uh, verse 20, he who sacrifices to any god other than to Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. Spiritual adultery. There's spiritual adultery. Um, go to verse 21-24. You shall not mistreat a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourning in the land. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. And if you indeed afflict him, if he early cries out to me, I will surely hear his cry. And my anger will burn, I will kill you with, with the sword, and your wife shall become widow, and your children fatherless. How does this fall under the command to not commit adultery? How does verse 21 through 24, how is that related to adultery? Remember, adultery focused on holiness. And so what Moses is saying in verses 22 and 21, 21 through 24, he's saying this. Keeping a, a, a foreigner is not unholy. Being with the Gentile is not considered unholy. If you mistreat a foreigner, that's unholy. That's unholy, right? So here's clear Exodus theology. Verse 23, if you indeed afflict him, and if he earnestly cries out to me, well, where did you hear that before? Remember when the Egyptians were crying out to the Lord? So you have this uh, uh, Exodus theology. So you're not to mistreat uh, a sojourner because you're my slaves. You're not, you're not, you're not Pharaoh. You're supposed to treat foreigners different than the way of uh, uh, Pharaoh did. Look at 25 through 27. 25 through 27. And that's the do not steal again. Remember, that's that number that we go with the ifs now, right? 25. If you lend money to my people, you shall not uh, charge an interest for. So in this situation, charging your brother uh, interest would be stealing from him. So maybe a modern day equivalent would be like uh, maybe a, a family member, you know. Let's say my my wife wanted to borrow money. I say, "Oh, you need to give me interest." That would be that would be stealing from her or. Maybe maybe a, even a brother and sister in Christ, you you set the interest too high, it would be kind of like this: somebody needs money from our church from the deacons fund, and we say, okay, we'll let you borrow it, but there's interest; you have to pay us back fifteen percent interest. That would be stealing from them. That's the idea. Look at this, uh, verse twenty-six: If you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you shall return it to him before. The sun sets. That is the only covering his clothes for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And, and, and when he cries out to me, I will hear him that gracious. So uh, let's say uh, the neighbor has a loan. 
and he says, here, I'll pay you back. Uh, in return, here's my cloak. Um, and let's say he can't pay it for some other reason. You, you have to give the cloak back. Uh, if not, you would be stealing from him. Um, so there's, there's, that, there's that. Okay, verse uh, 28. Uh, that's quoted in the New Testament, I believe. I think Paul was quoted that when he was struck by one of the high priests. Uh, verse 29. Verse 29 to 31. Okay, so, so, so verse, starting with verse, uh, uh, verse 28. It was the second uh, second chiasm that begins, right? So twenty-eight is commandment number five. That was to not honor to, to honor your mother and father. Verse twenty-eight is part of that, respecting authority, honoring authority. Verses twenty-nine to thirty-one is commandment number ten, to not covet, to not covet your neighbor's belongings. How is twenty-nine for thirty-one how, how does that relate to not coveting? How does it relate to not coveting? When it talks about a delay the offering of the fullness of your harvest and the juice of your wine fat. How does this relate to covetousness? You're coveting what you should be giving to God. Exactly. You're coveting what you should give to God. Amen. You're being greedy. Isn't this kind of like stealing? This is a... This, this is... Yes, why is it, why is it, how do we know it's not stealing and it's something new because of the grammar, right? Yeah, the the yeah. you started. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, so verse 28 is commandment number five. Mm-hmm. Verses 29 to 31 is, is, uh, is coveting. And what helps us is because we see the chiasm. Mm-hmm. And so we know if number nine is in the middle and 23, 10 through 19 is clearly coveting. Look at 10 through 19. It's about uh, giving giving your, you know, six days, seventh day you rest, uh, keeping the unleavened bread. That's clearly uh, do not covet. So that helps us uh, understand that verse 29 and 30 is dealing with, and 31 is dealing with coveting. So the structure, again, helps you understand what commandment goes with what. Okay, sorry, uh, I know this is long. We're almost done. We're almost done. 23 through 1, one through 9. This is commandment number 9. Verse, verse 1, look at that. You shall not bear a false report. Do not join your hand with a, 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 a man to be a... a, a, a so that commandment number 9 is what? was commandment number 9 really quick? You shall bear, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay? Against your neighbor. That's the key, key thing. So verses one through nine answers the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Okay? And you'll find out. Let's read that together. You shall not bear a false witness. Do not join your hand with the wicked man to be a malicious witness. Uh, somebody, somebody going to court case who needs justice, that's your neighbor. That's your neighbor. You shall not follow the masses in doing evil, nor shall you testify in a case so as to turn aside after the masses in order to cause justice to be turned aside. 23. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his case. Who is my neighbor? A poor man who needs justice. That's who my neighbor is. 
Verse 4, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Who's my neighbor? An enemy in need. An enemy who, who has a donkey wandering away, you shall return it to him. Because even though he's your enemy, he needs that animal. So that's your neighbor. You, verse 6, you shall not cause the justice due to your needy brother to turn aside in this case. Keep far from a, a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous. I will justify it. You shall not take a bribe or criticize the judgment. You shall not oppress a sojourner. So a sojourner is in your a sojourner is your neighbor. So who is your neighbor in verses 1 through 9? What's the definition of a neighbor? Somebody in need. Somebody in need. And Jesus answers that question. When they said, who's my neighbor? Jesus just understood the law. He says, well, your neighbor is somebody who's in need. So verses 1 through, 1 through 9, it helps you explain uh, helps you understand commandment number 9. Uh, verses 10 through 19, this is command number 10, do not covet, do not covet. You know, in the Feast of Harvest, bring your first fruits. Do not covet what belongs to God. Thank you, Jim. And then, verse 20 and 21, this is really interesting. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to keep you along the way, to bring you to the place which, which I have prepared, Keep watch yourself before him and listen to his voice and do not be rebellious toward him for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. Who is this angel? Right? This angel can what? What, what can he do in verse 21? He can forgive sins. This, this angel, you have to listen to his voice. Verse 21, my name is in him. My name is in this angel. Remember, angel just means divine being. Is Jesus a divine being? Yes, that's what it means. Then verse 22, for if you truly listen to his voice and do all that I speak, what do you mean? His voice or or you speak, God, which is it? Right? They're one and the same. And so this is the second person of the Trinity. This is shedding more light on Exodus 14, where in Exodus 14, you see this angel of the Lord, right? And you're confused. Who is this angel of the Lord? Chapter 23 explains more about him. Verse 23, my angel will be go, go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites. So what is Paul talking about in, in 1 Corinthians? The, 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 the Jesus, the rock, leading his people. Now, Moses already told us that, that it was... It was God, but not God the Father. And then um, um, you see uh, 24, uh, you see commands number one and two. You shall not worship their gods. You shall not serve them. You shall not do, do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly pull them down and shatter their sacred pillars in, in pieces, right? Uh, commandment number two, verse 25, but you shall serve Yahweh your God, commandment number one. Commandment number one and commandment number one and two are uh, so that's the, the so so the commandment number five is the last piece of the chiasm. Remember how it started back in verse twenty-eight: "You shall not curse God nor curse the ruler of your people." Commandment number five: commandment to honor your parents. The commandment to honor authority, and it ends in chapter twenty-three with commandment one and two, which goes together with commandment number five.
My point is, this is my point, kind of a, something I want you to observe. There's, there's a lot of complexity here. If you, if you missed it, that's okay. But this is not just random, kind of Moses saying anything and not going anywhere. There's complexity, there's structure, and it's sophisticated. It's sophisticated. Right? Um, if you're reading a legal treatise, and we are all lawyers, you read something difficult. For the layperson, it would be like, it would seem random and chaotic. But to somebody trained, a trained mind, you would see the complexity and admire the one who wrote it. And that's what chapter 21, 22, and chapter 23 is designed to show you. That there's st- clear structure uh, and there's clear um, complexity to show that this is a remarkable law. That the, the, the law here reveals the greatest legal mind in the universe, God himself. And remember, chapter 21, chapter 22, chapter 23, what flows through all of it? Commandment number three. Do not take the Lord your name in vain. So remember that for this Sunday.